right, this uh, Thursday, of course, is going to be our nation, National Birthday. At least we celebrate it on the 4th of July, so that's our Independence Day, and I'll be doing an Independence Day special on Thursday evening. Also, a reminder that um, Vacation Bible School is coming up in uh, two or three weeks. A couple of weeks, Camp Arete has started being prayer for those, and also we need some uh, volunteers to teach in prep schools. So if anyone uh, is so inclined to help out in those areas, then talk to Mark, Mark Friedrich about that. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Before we open God's word this evening, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice that we can come together this evening to fellowship around the teaching of your word, be reminded of who you are, the greatness of your power, and that you are more powerful than any problem, any situation, any circumstance that we face. You are the God of history. You are working out your plan through history, and it is our privilege to serve you in the course of this history and as it works itself out in relation to the angelic rebellion and bringing about your glorification in this church age and on into the dispensations to come. Father, we pray for those of this congregation who are sick. We've had some who've been hospitalized in the last week, and they're going home and they're doing well. We pray for others and pastors who are uh, having uh, difficulty and have gone through strokes and other significant issues in the last few weeks. We pray for Dan Ingram and his recovery and the treatment for his cancer and John Page in uh, out there in Oregon and uh, recovering from a small stroke. And also, Father, we, we continue to pray for uh, all these pastors who are faithfully serving you, teaching your word uh, throughout this country, and we pray that you would supply their needs, strengthen them, and we pray that you would give them listeners who would be ready to hear the word and to apply it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. And we are back into the midst of this psalm. Now, what I want to do a little bit at the beginning is to just reorient us to what we're studying and where we're going, because it has been about four weeks since we were actually in uh, Psalm 89, and that is just a portion of a broader study within our study of Second Samuel. 
Second Samuel, we came to Second Samuel chapter 7, and we went through the passages related to the Davidic covenant, specifically Second Samuel 7, where God gave this covenant to David. It's an unconditional covenant, an eternal covenant, a covenant that is foundational to the coming of the Messiah. Now, we looked at that, and then we began to trace it, how the Davidic covenant was used in subsequent books of Scripture, various messianic prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Malachi, and then into the New Testament, tying all these together. And I only covered a few, but there are dozens and dozens of these allusions to the, I mean, excuse me, to the Davidic covenant. So we studied about the Davidic covenant, and then we came back to Psalm 89. And in Psalm 89, we have a actually a prayer of faith. It is an example of the faith rest drill. As the writer of Psalm 89 is truly reminding God of the content of the covenant and calling upon God in a time of crisis where the house of David is being threatened to fulfill his promise to David, to fulfill his promise to Israel, to bring about the, the, to protect the line of the Messiah and then ultimately to bring the Messiah to Israel. And so this is, uh, this is the sense of this, this long psalm. It's 52 verses long and it has uh, several key sections to it. So just to review the general outline, the first part of this psalm is a focus upon God's character. It's on God's love and faithfulness. His love is particularly nuanced in the sense of the verb that is used here, chesed, as opposed to ahav. Ahav is a general word for love. If you're telling somebody that you love them, that's the word that you will use. But the word that is used here is often translated different ways depending on the translation you're using. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. In the New King James Version, it's translated mercy at the beginning, and then later it is translated loving kindness. As you know, I don't like it when translations use different English words to translate the same word in Hebrew because people don't see the, the unity of the, of the message when that happens. And so at the beginning in these first 18 verses, the focus is on God's character and a focus upon the faithful, loyal love of God. And that is connected to his faithfulness. The word for uh, his mercy is chesed. The word for faithfulness is imuna. And that seems to be the major connection here, that God's loyal love is connected to his imuna, which has the sense of steadfastness and stability. And it is the from the same root as the Hebrew word amen. You can hear the similarity, amuna, amen. And amen, the, 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 this, this core, uh, the core meaning of this word is used in another form to refer to the foundation under the pillars of the Solomonic temple, the first temple. There are two huge pillars outside the entry to the temple, and the foundation that was laid 
is referred to in Chronicles by a cognate of this word. And what that tells you is the root meaning of amen, which is usually translated faith or belief, or I believe that, or imuna, faithfulness, stability, is that the foundation is unshakable. It's reliable. We believe it because it is certain and unshakable. And so the faithfulness of God is his, uh, uh, we're, we're certain about it, his character is unshakable, he's reliable, he's dependable, he will not waver, he will not be shaken. So these ideas are intertwined in the first 18 verses. And then we get to the second division, which is from verse 19 to 37, and is a review of the promise. So when we look at the faith rest drill, we're calling upon God to fulfill a promise. So that's what this writer is doing. First, he reminds God of his faithfulness. In other words, he's saying, God, you're going to be faithful to your word and faithful to your promise. You'll fulfill your promise. And then he goes through the details of the promise in verses 19 to 37. Now, if you recall, the covenant itself was only about five or six verses. So this is a lot longer than the covenant, but it's he's reflecting upon its implications and the need for God to fulfill his promise. And then in the last section, from verse 38 to 52, he calls upon God to remain faithful to his promises to David, even though the nation has been sinful, even though it's a time of divine discipline and divine judgment, to, that he is, uh, he, it looks like God may cancel the covenant, so he's calling upon God to be faithful. And there, there's a lot of application here for us because it shows us how we are to pray. It shows us how we are uh, to use promises and to claim those promises and to petition God to fulfill those particular promises. So we're working our way uh, through that. In terms of the development of this opening section in the first four verses, there's an emphasis on God's covenant loyalty. That's what it means by mercy, his chesed, his loyal love, his faithfulness to his covenant. And that is connected to the parallel term uh, for faithfulness, and that's the praise in the first four sections. So it's a focus on God's character, who he is. And then in verses 5 to 18, it expands on his character, and it brings in the attributes of his omnipotence, his strength, his power, his uh, righteousness and justice are brought in, as well as his loyal love. All of this is, is connected together and praise so that we have a profound view of who God is. And if that's broken down in verse 5, we have... Uh, the statement that God will be praised, the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. And then second, we see that the Lord will be praised for his unique and awesome attributes. The emphasis is on his holiness, which means he's one of a kind, he's distinct, he's unique. And so that's his, there's none like the Lord. He is uh, God alone. And then in verses 9 to 14, the emphasis on his omnipresence and his sovereign rule of creation, which then this section ends with a statement praising God that the people will be blessed because they walk with him 
and they glory in his righteousness and his strength. So the whole of these 18 verses is exceptionally theocentric. Now when you think about this as a psalm, it it was something that would be set to music and would be sung. And this kind of singing, all of the psalms become for us as church-age believers a pattern for the kind of lyrics that we should have in in our singing. A lot of contemporary music in churches is very shallow and superficial. When the pulpit ministry is superficial, the saints in the pew will have a superficial spiritual life. A believer in the pew cannot grow beyond the level of the teaching that comes out of the pulpit. A church is just like a one-room schoolhouse. There are some here who are babies. There are some here who are adolescents in their spiritual life. There are some that are very mature in their spiritual life. Some have a tremendous familiarity with Scripture. Some are not so familiar with Scripture. And yet the pastor has to teach across a spectrum, just like in the uh, frontier days of this country, everybody grew up in one-room schoolhouses, and you had everyone from about the age of four or five up to about 14 or 15 in one class, and so they were, they were all taught. And everybody learned something as you, as you went through it, and that's what happens in, in the church. As the Word is taught, everybody can learn something. There are going to be some things that you don't catch, other things that you may think, well, that's pretty simple. I've heard it a thousand times. And my experience is that if you've only heard it a thousand times, you need to hear it about 5,000 more times. And then one day you're going to go, oh, I finally figured out what that means. And if you haven't had that experience yet, well, you just haven't been around long enough. So... Uh, We study the Word, we read the Word, we become familiar with the Word, and one of the things that happens in the history of Christianity, if you go back and you read about the lives of a lot of the men who wrote what what are usually referred to as traditional hymns. Now, not all traditional hymns are qualitative. It's not, as I've said many times, it's not about old versus new. It's about quality versus... uh, versus something that is just trivial or a cliché, bad poetry, bad music, or maybe bad theology. But what we see historically is you look at men who wrote wrote these hymns or wrote poetry. It reveals men who weren't watching their iPhone every two seconds. They weren't watching TV eight hours a day. They weren't... uh, distracted by reading every news item that they could come up with every day. Uh, They weren't distracted by a lot of the things that we spend our time doing. They spent their time reading the Bible until the Bible and what had become internalized in them. And they could write in the in the rhythm and the cadence of Scripture and they could put a line from this psalm with a line from an epistle with a line from a historical book and pull things together and express the essence of Scripture in a remarkable way that allowed people to think about God in a fresh way as they were singing. And it was biblical. It was grounded in the text. 
And so the Psalms are, are that way. So this is a Psalm that is written as a contemplation or a meditation on the Davidic covenant, God's faithfulness, God's character, and how God would fulfill his promises to David. And so when you read this and read this, remember in a lot of these folks that wrote these hymns memorized huge chunks of scripture. Bible memory has fallen out of practice today. And I know of people, Jim Myers is one that's always emphasizing Bible memory, and he's memorized large chunks of, of, of Scripture. And it's really good if you're a parent or grandparent to get a regular Bible memory program going with your kids. The earlier you can get them to memorize Scripture, not just one verse, but two or th- put three or four together, put a chapter together, that will stick with them over the years. And God will really use that. And it saturates their souls with the Word of God before a lot of other garbage gets in there. So start very early. You've heard me say many times, my mother said that the very first complete sentence I said in English was 1 John 1, 9. And I had that memorized very, very early. So before I was long before I was a believer. So never make the mistake as a parent to think that your kids are too young to hear something. Their brains are working with it. They may not be able to understand it as an adult, but hearing the Word of God has an impact. Hearing anything, just read aloud, talk to your kids all the time. Their little brains are developing and processing and working with all of that information, and don't minimize the significance of it, and never make the mistake of saying, well, I'm going to wait until they're old enough, and then I'll talk to them about it. That is going to earn you a grade F in parenting. You start training them long before you think that they're really capturing it. So we get into the faith rest drill. First part is to claim a promise. That is to pick a promise, either a whole verse, part of a verse, statement of a verse, and you are saying, God, this is what you promised me, that if I would cast my care upon you, then you would take care of it uh, because you care for me. So I'm, I've got this problem. I'm praying that you would solve that problem or help give me the strength to make it through the situation. And I'm because you say you love me, you're going to strengthen me and give me the wisdom to face it. Uh, connect First uh, Peter five seven with James one five. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who give, giveth liberally and upbraideth not. And as a result of that, God will give you the wisdom to handle, handle the trial. In the second step, you start thinking through the doctrinal rationales embedded in the promise. Now, if you're memorizing these promises, this is what always hits me. To learn the promise and memorize it, I have to think through the logic of the promise I have to think through the structure. What's the condition? Is there a condition? Uh, What is the exact situation of the giving of the statement in Scripture? You think through all of that so you come to understand what the teaching is that is embedded in that promise. And then you appropriate that and you you claim it and ask God to uh, fulfill that promise in your life. So that's the essence of the faith rest drill. Now, when we got out of the introduction of Psalm 89, that's the first four verses, then we shifted to the second part of that introduction, starting in verse 5, going down to verse 18, 
which focuses on the character of God. And I want to remind you of how this is set up in terms of the structure, because for the last four uh, classes, we were looking at tracing out, figuring out how to interpret that one reference down in verse um, down in verse eight, or yeah, down in verse t- uh, ten actually, with a reference to Re- Rahab actually. So. The heavens, read verse 5. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assemblies of the saints. It's, it's um, in the uh, New King James, it's the saints, and it's not saints, it's the holy ones. And it's talking about the angels. The other day I was driving through Austin, or out on the northwest side of Austin, and I saw a hospital named St. David. And I turned to my wife and I said, would you remind me who was St. David? I don't remember who that was. Not in my Bible. And so that's often what happens. You run into these kinds of things. But a saint, the term saint is used in the New Testament for anyone who is a believer. This is not talking about human beings. It's talking about the angels, and we know that because there is a structural parallelism between the first part of the first stanza and the heavens will praise. Well, the heavens don't praise, but the inhabitants of the heavens praise, and so the habitation is put for those who who live in it. It's called a that figure of speech is called a metonymy. So it is that the angels who inhabit the heavens will praise, and that's made clear in the uh, parallel, the synonymous parallelism of the second stanza, your faithfulness, which is parallel to wonders, also in the assembly of the holy ones. So right now we're introduced to an important facet of the angelic conflict, and that is that there are convocations or assemblies of angels before the throne of God. This is what we see in Job chapter 1, verse 6, when the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim, come before God and Satan is among them. So apparently these angelic convocations still include the fallen angels. And so then there's conversation there with God. So this is talking about those angelic convocations where both fallen and elect angels are together. So the heavens will praise your wonders and your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. Now, because this is focusing on those who praise God, obviously this is primarily focusing on those who are the elect, the elect angels, those who are set apart. That's the Hebrew word here, kadosh, and it has that main meaning of that which is set apart to the service of God or something that is unique or distinct. So those who are set apart to the service of God in heaven are these uh, elect angels. Now, I want you to notice that in this verse, we have this emphasis on the heavens, that's their, their abode, and those in the heavens are the assembly of the Kadoshim, the holy ones. Then we go to the next verse, and it says, for... Who in the heavens, it goes back to that same figure of speech, those who are in the heavens can be compared to the Lord. Who of those among the heavens, who among these 
angels can be compared to the Lord? And the answer is none of them. So this introduces us to this um, uh, rhetorical questions. There's three that occur here, to, and the answer to all of them is no one, none. There's no one that can be compared to the Lord among all of those who dwell in the heavens. And the second line is a parallel to that, and it says, who among the sons of the mighty? Now, the Hebrew here is B'nai Elim, not B'nai Elohim, okay? Elim is not a diminutive form of God. It's not talking about God. It's talking about the sons uh, of the mighty. This is a, a, a reference uh, to God, but it is not the same as B'nai Elohim. so don't that shouldn't be a point of confusion. Who among the sons of the mighty, that's another term for the angels, can be likened to the Lord? Who's like God? Who can be compared to the Lord? Who can be likened to the Lord? No one. That's the answer. Then, so we see again this parallelism. The the place is in the heavens. The uh, the metonymy is talking about those who dwell the heavens, uh, the sons of the mighty, again the angels. So it's introducing the angels and this is important as a backdrop for understanding the Davidic covenant. One of the problems that we have in in a lot of theology is a failure to appreciate the significance of Satan's angelic rebellion against God and how that impacts human history. And so when this writer of of um, Psalm 89, Ethan the Ezraite, as we as he is thinking this through, he starts off bringing our attention to the angels. Verse 7, he said, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the holy ones. So we have a reference back to the second line in verse 5. So this becomes a topical sentence. The phrase, the heavens, is the beginning of verse 6. And the phrase, assembly of the holy ones, is the beginning of verse 7. And notice, these are all those who are around him. Now we'll come back to that, but pay attention to that for a minute. God is greatly to be feared. And the Hebrew word that is there for, for greatly to be feared is a word that almost means uh, terrorized, to tremble, to be just awestruck, to be uh, f- fearful because you're in the presence of the mighty God. It's, it's illustrated by that circumstance in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is before the throne of God and when he sees God, he falls on his face and he says, woe is me, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He is terrified to be in the presence of of a holy God because he recognizes how profoundly sinful he is. He is not treating this as just some sort of academic situation. Isn't this interesting that there's God and he's holy and here I am and I'm not? No, it it strikes fear to the core of his being. Now, in that first stanza, God is greatly to be feared And in the second line, and to be held in reverence. And really, that should be a reverential fear. So God is greatly to be dreaded. That's one way to translate that. God is greatly to be dreaded in the assembly of the saints 
and to be held in fearful reverence by all those around him. Now, that's verse 7, and if you look in your Bibles at verse 8, the next verse says, O Lord God of hosts. Now, that brings, again, this whole angelic conflict to the forefront because the phrase, the word there for hosts is sabaoth, which is an ant which is often translated by an antiquated word in English, hosts, which means armies. He is the God of the armies of the angels. And then the writer introduces the key issue. He says, who is mighty like you, O Lord? That takes us to the omnipotence of God. Who is mighty like you, O Lord? Again, this is the third question. No one. No one has the power of God. And then he says, your faithfulness also surrounds you. And this is that word that is used several times in the first part, talking about uh, parallel, uh, uh, parallel with hesed is that word emuna, which emphasizes the faithfulness of God. If you look at verse 1, it says, I will sing of the mercies or the hesed of the Lord forever, with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. So chesed, God's loyal love, is parallel and synonymous with faithfulness. His loyal love is faithful. Then in verse 2 we read, Mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. So those terms are, are synonyms, and they are expressing this close dependence and interconnection between God's love and God's loyal, uh, God's faithfulness, his stability, his dependability. Then in verse 5 we read, and the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. So wonders is synonymous to God's stability. So that's his, the wonders are his acts in human history, the miracles, the way he sustains everything and provides for everything. And so he is faithful in the way he oversees uh, all of creation and the way he works in all of our lives. That comes under the category of wonders. And I pointed out that the Hebrew word translated wonders is only used, only used of God. And then in verse 8, which is where we're about to arrive. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. Now, what are the ter two terms that are parallel there? Now faithfulness is synonymous or parallel to his power. He's faithful in his power. His power is stable. His power is dependable. His power brings... Uh, stability and certainty into our lives. And so when you're thinking your way through this and you've got a problem, God's power is greater than your problem, and God's power is always something you can depend on, something that is reliable and unshakable. So we're seeing that the idea of faithfulness is being uh, built out here by these synonyms that the writer is using. So we see an emphasis on God's um, omnipotence, and then we get to a really important section that led us into a, a sidetrack, and that's verse 9. I didn't have a slide for verse 8. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. 
Now, this is interesting. We talked about the fact that in Canaanite religion, there were, there's a sea god, Yom. Yom is the phrase that is typically used of just the salt sea, of the ocean, the Red Sea, uh, that nature. So he rules the raging of the sea. Now, the raging has to do with the storms, the tempestuousness of the, of the waves. And this uses a, a Hebrew word, ga'ut, which means to rise up. So sometimes it's talking about God rising up against his enemies. It has a positive sense. But in other passages, it, it talks about men elevating themselves in pride or arrogance. So when you hear this phrase, there is a, a primary meaning talking about God and his power over a raging sea. Now, can you think of an illustration of that in Scripture? Well, the first one's Genesis 1, 2, where God, the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the, um, you know, over the deep. And that is when God is bringing, there, there's disorder in the chaos of the deep, and God is in control of it. Now, that word to home is a cognate to a, uh, a Semitic word, Tiamat. Tiamat was the goddess of the chaos of the sea. And so there's a polemic here going on. A polemic is when something is stated a certain way to demonstrate the power of God over against the impotence of the uh, pagan religions, the pagan gods and goddesses. God's no respecter of religions. He's no respecter of persons who are disobedient to him. And he doesn't want to put up with it. He's not, he doesn't play nice. Snowflakes have to grow up and wake up to the fact that God doesn't like those who, who disrespect him. In fact, if you read through some of the prophets, uh, which a lot of liberals just don't like, you'll see uh, an example I was reading in between chapter uh, 4 and chapter 12 in, in uh, 2 Kings, or in 1 Kings rather, that you have a situation where, uh, for one instance, the king of, of Israel is sending out troops to bring Elisha to him. So he sends out 50 troops, and they come to Elisha, and Elisha asks, the, com the commander comes and says, I need to take you to the king, and Elisha says no, and all 50 in that squad are killed. So the king finds out that you know they, they never came back bringing Elisha, so he sends out a second detail of 50 men. They come up to Elisha, and they, uh, the commander comes to him and says, I need to take you to the king. And he says, nope, not today. And all 50 of those are killed. And then a third man is sent out, and he takes another squad of 50 with him, and he comes and bows down to Elisha demonstrating great respect for Elisha as the spokesperson for God. And he says, uh, please pray that, that God will not take the lives of these men and that he will not take my life. And as long as I am in charge and you're with me, you will be safe. The point is that those first two squads were made up of men who would have done physical harm to Elisha because they had no respect for God. And when you don't have respect for God, God's going to make a big point out of it, and he took their lives. 
Now, that seems like harsh justice to the mind of modern man, but the reality is God is teaching people that you don't mess with God. You don't mess with Texas. You don't mess with God. That he is to be treated with honor and respect and that he should be... Uh, be obeyed. He is the one who is stands and makes war against the proud. So when you look at Psalm eighty nine nine, it's not just the 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 raging uh, of the sea that is just God's control over these unrestrained elements, but it's the sea, it's the yam, which becomes also a picture of the demonic forces. So it shows God has control over the elements of chaos that have come about as a result of sin. And Jesus depicts that in the New Testament when he walks on water on the Sea of Galilee. Did you ever wonder why Jesus did it in the midst of a violent storm? When all of his disciples are scared to death and Jesus walks out on the Sea of Galilee... He's doing it to demonstrate. That's the New Testament illustration of what was said in Job, that God treads on the waters. God is in control. It is a picture of God's control over the chaos that is in our lives and in the world uh, because of sin. And so the writer here says, you rule the raging of the sea, the pride of of these forces against God, when its waves rise, you still them. All of this is still related to uh, this backdrop of the angels and those who are praising God in the heavens. You see the imp, imp, impact of that same word in Psalm 46.3, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. And some translations translate that as, as pride. So that's the same word that we have uh, back here, the ge'uth, that's the, the swelling, the rising uh, of the waters. Now when we come then to the next verse in verse 10, which we spent a lot of time on trying to understand who this is. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who has slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Now, when we looked at this, I pointed out that even though in the English it's transliterated as looks like Rahab, but it's not the uh, prostitute in Joshua chapter 2. That's the second word, and you can see that the middle letter is slightly different. There's a little gap at the top here that's not here, and that makes it a different letter in the Hebrew. It is should be translated or transliterated as Rahav, and the name is Rahav. So this is talking about something completely different. And so we took the time to go back through the passages that talked about Rahab. And here's a list. I filled out more verses. The others were just a uh, sort of a representation. That Rahab is used in Job 9.13 where it's translated the proud one. That's the meaning of Rahab. The core meaning is the proud one. And we saw that the proud one in Scripture is Satan. He is the proud one. He is the arrogant one. So it shows up in these verses in Job, which is very early. Job is written about the time of Abraham and Isaac. It is before Israel is a nation. Jerusalem's not mentioned. Abraham's not mentioned. The Jews aren't mentioned. It's all Gentile-oriented, talking about why they're suffering in the world. 
And it starts off with this angelic convocation and Satan in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. And then in throughout Job, there's these references to Leviathan and Behemoth and the serpents and Rahab. And all of these were terms that were used in pagan Canaanite religion. But that's not the point here. These, they're also referencing literal um, creatures that God made to depict these satanic forces. And so they're using it that way. They become metaphors for that. And so when we look at this verse, you have broken, you have broken the arrogant one in pieces. As one who is slain, you have scattered your enemies. So see, there's a parallel between Rahab and your enemies. That tells you that Rahab here is an enemy of God. And then it says, you've scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The arm of God, the hand of God, these are often anthropomorphisms to describe the power of God and the omnipotence of God and his, and his strength. Uh, Rahab is often associated with Leviathan, who is a creature of the sea. The sea is that corporate entity of the demons. Remember that the beast that comes out of the sea in Daniel chapter 8 and also in Revelation 12 and 13. And so the sea is not something good. It is the source of, of evil. So it is a picture of the corporate entity of Satan's forces and and the demonic forces. So the writer here is demonstrating the power of God over the forces of evil. Now, I pointed out that in some passages, Rahab clearly refers to Egypt. But as I, as I also pointed out going through these passages, each passage, whether you're talking about Psalm 74, whether you're talking about Isaiah 27, whether you're talking about the passages in Job, you have to see what is the reference uh, alluding to in each of those contexts. You can't just say, well, it's Egypt over in Isaiah 27, and so it must be Egypt here. And Leviathan relates to Egypt uh, over in Psalm 74, and the sea there also talks about the Red Sea, so that's talking about the Exodus events, so that's what it must be here. But that's the methodology that that is often the case as as uh, scholars relate to this. And it talks about the sea, it talks about Rahab, must be Egypt. But is there anything here in this text that tells you that this is talking about the Exodus event? And um, as I, as I uh, was studying on this some more uh, this morning... I noticed and I looked at uh, Alan Ross's commentary on the Psalms, which is one of the best commentaries in, uh, in print, and he makes the observation there that this, he just states this must be, uh, this must be uh, Egypt because Rahab speaks of Egypt in several other, in, in several other places. But then when he gets down to verses 11 and 12, he says in verse 11 and 12, the psalmist describes God's work in creation. The section may be a direct result of the theme of God's sovereignty over the seas. See, that would be relating to the deep in Genesis 1-2. And he says, 
but the text simply declares that the heaven and the earth and all they contain belong to the Lord due to the fact that he founded them, and that is in uh, Psalm 89-11. So the problem that I have with that as an explanation is that there's nothing in verses 9 and 10, the raging of the sea, and the uh, and breaking Rahab in pieces, which also in Job is indicated as something that happened much earlier than Job, that that is talking about the Exodus event. In Isaiah, yes. In Psalm 74, yes. Psalm 74 was written by Asaph, who may be a contemporary of Ethan, maybe at the same time. But you don't have these uh, the clear passages identifying Rahab with Egypt until you get into the Isaiah passages and a Jeremiah passage. When you're in Job, it's clearly not Egypt. It's talking about this individual who is opposed to God. So Rahab does not always refer to the same person overtly, but I think there's there's a a reference there. Rahab speaks of the arrogant one who is Satan. Rahab is applied to Pharaoh in the Isaiah passage in Psalm um, Psalm seventy four and the Jeremiah passage, because the real power behind the Pharaoh was Satan. This the the power of Pharaoh over the Jews, his refusal to let them go, had everything to do with Satan. Satan's attempt to destroy the Jews and keep them from going back to the land that God had promised them. And so the Pharaoh is referred to not as simply as Pharaoh, but as Rahab to let people know that it's talking about the force, the power that was behind the Pharaoh. Everything is related to the angelic conflict. And so that's the emphasis here is to remind us that that of, of this original battle with Rahab. Now, when you get into verse 11, it's clearly creation. But why can't verses 9 and 10 also be in relation to the original creation? Nothing there would indicate that it was uh, at the time of the Exodus. So in verse 11, the emphasis here is on God as the creator of the heavens and the earth. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all its fullness. So see, the first line says, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. That's a merism, where you have like God creating the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, 1. What else is there besides the heavens and the earth? Nothing. Night and day, that's another merism, where you're talking about two opposites to include everything uh, between them. So the heavens are yours, the earth is yours, and then it's summarized in the first part of the second line, uh, or the earth part is expanded actually. The world and all its fullness, you have founded them. Now this was really interesting. The word there that is translated founded is the Hebrew word yasad, which means to lay a foundation or to establish. It's the first thing that happens in a construction project. The world in all of its fullness, you have laid a foundation. This is the same word that is used in Job 38. Job 38.4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
God is talking to Job, asking a series of rhetorical questions to expose his ignorance, his inability to understand all that God did. And then the last line says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So this is pointing to a time when there's no disruption among the angels. They're all shouting for joy. They're all praising God at the laying of the foundations of the earth. And so I believe that that this fits into a pattern uh, where you have the original creation of the heavens and the earth. This is where Satan's habitation was, according to Ezekiel chapter 28, 12 to 14. There's an angelic rebellion that takes place, Satan's rebellion that takes place. This is when he is, is defeated. This is then depicted in the language of Genesis 1-2, that you have the chaos of Tahom, you have... Uh, you have the darkness on the face of the earth. Darkness is often a depiction of judgment. The Tahom is the deep. It's salt water. You don't have salt water in the new heavens and the new earth. All of this indicates something uh, drastic, tragic, uh, catastrophic happened uh, that caused a judgment on the earth. It does the the. The idea that there's a gap of time between Genesis one one and one two when Satan fell has been around at least as early as maybe the early Middle Ages. Custance uh, went back and traced it to some early rabbinic writings. Nobody was making the earth old. Nobody. It wasn't until the early 19th century that you had a Scottish theologian. He was one of the, he was the preeminent Scottish theologian in the early 18. 20s and 1830s by the name of Thomas Chalmers, and he said, well, we the geology must be right. See, that was his first error. Geology must be right. The earth is, and at that time they were just saying the earth was 50 or 60,000 years old. So he's saying, well, find a place where we can put that into the Bible. Well, we'll put it there. People were already putting the fall of Satan there. That's, In my opinion, that's the only place you can put it. I've queried many, many people over the years. They can't answer that exegetically. They just say, well, sometime in there. But I think these passages related to Rahab and Leviathan indicate uh, an original defeat of Satan, and that's where it would take where it would take place. But that's what this is alluding to, is you have broken Rahab in pieces, and it's connecting this in the next verse to approximately the same time as laying the foundation of the earth. So then we get into verse verse 12. Uh, verse 11, or, yeah, verse 12. The north and the south, you have created them, Tavor and Hermon, Rejoice in your name. Now, those are two mountains in the north of Israel. So if you look at a map of Israel, this is the northern part of Israel. Most of this area here is the, is the Galilee. Up at the very far north of Israel is Mount Hermon. This is where Mount Hermon is located. The area that's tan is Assyria today. And the distance from Mount Hermon to Damascus is about 40 miles. Damascus is closer to the northern border of Israel than we are to Galveston. Just think about that. That's the border of, of Syria. The other mountain that's mentioned here is Mount Tavor, which is located right down here. This 
line right here roughly is the ridge of the uh, of Mount Carmel. The, just to the northeast of that is a valley, the Valley of Esdralon, Jezreel Valley. And on the other side, you have some different mountains. You have one of them is Mount Tabor. Now, everything in between here, or most of what's in between there, is a lot of timber, a lot of agriculture, uh, a, a lot of the uh, valley that's around Mount Tabor here, the Esdralon Valley is the breadbasket of Israel. This is where a lot of their agricultural takes place. And so it's a, it, it's a depiction of the blessing of God on Israel to provide all of these wonderful natural resources uh, for Israel. Here is a picture of Mount Tabor. It's kind of an unusual-looking and shaped mountain, so you can always spot it. And that is off to the left behind this ridge over here would be where Nazareth is located. And then off to the right in the distance here would be where uh, the Sea of Galilee is located. Then if you go north, you go to Mount Hermon. This is what Mount Hermon looks like probably in the early spring covered with snow. They have a, on the Israeli side, they have a ski lift. You can go ski Israel if you get there in the right time of the year. So the psalmist is saying, Lord, you've created this. You've created this wonderful land that you have given us, and it is a land of blessing. When he, said, when he personifies Tavor and Hermon in the second line, he is, he is personifying them that they rejoice. And it's really the fact that as they look out over they're personified looking out over all of this wonderful land in Galilee that is so productive and has so much great agricultural natural agriculture natural resources they rejoice in God's name and what we've seen is that when you have these phrases referencing the name of God that's always a reference to his character because all of this demonstrates the creation uh, demonstrates the character of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, Psalm 19.1. So we see this e emphasis on the essence of God, that uh, these ten characteristics summarize the essence of God, that God is sovereign. He rules over his creation. That's the backdrop of much of what is said here in these first 18 verses, God is sovereign. But it specifically states that God is righteous. If you look down at verse, verse 14, we read, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So we'll see righteousness and justice emphasized. Love in the sense of chesed, God's loyal love, is emphasized all through the psalm. We see God's omnipotence, his might, his power, the strength of his hand, the strength of his arm, is also emphasized, and his immutability. So as you read through this psalm, you should just be overwhelmed by what we learn about who God is and the greatness of his, of his power. When we come to verse 13, we read, You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, and high is your right hand. Now, what is this talking about? Is God just a good weightlifter? Well, arm and hand are, um, are, are also 
figures of speech representing power, representing God's omnipotence. He has a mighty arm. They're, they're anthropomorphisms. Uh, God doesn't actually have an arm, doesn't actually like have a hand like we do, but it is with our hand that we make things and we produce things. It is with our arm that we lift things and move things. It, they, they represent power. And so that is, and this is found all through the scripture, this, this kind of uh, anthropomorphism. For example, in Psalm 17, 7, show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. Now, I chose that verse because it connects the right hand and his power to chesed, to his loyal love. His loyal love works through his power to bring about that which he desires, which he intends. And so the psalmist says, show your faithful, loyal love by your omnipotence. Oh, you who saved those, you who saved those who trusted you. That's how he's referring to God. God is our savior of those who trust in him. Uh, save us from those who rise up against them. Psalm 1835, you have also given me the shield of your salvation. Now we're going to see that, the term shield, which is the Hebrew word magen, and you have various forms of it. One of them is uh, mogen. You have mogen David wine, the shield of David. Okay, you also have magen uh, David in, in Israel, which is the uh, form of the same phrase, but that's their ambulance service. Okay, that's like the version of Red Cross, okay? And you've also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. So shield is parallel to right hand. God's omnipotence is what protects us. He watches over us. In Exodus 6.6, 6, talking about the Exodus event, says that God redeemed them with an outstretched arm. It was God's omnipotence that brought the ten plagues on Egypt that freed them and delivered them. And that's the same God who's, who was able to free it, the Israelites from, um, from bondage in Egypt. Is the same God that can solve your problem as well. Deuteronomy 5.15 combines them that they were brought out by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then in, the, in Jeremiah 21, it refers to God's fight against Israel. He's talking about King Zedekiah, and he says, I will fight against you. So he told Hezekiah, um, Zedekiah to quit fighting against the Babylonians. And Zedekiah says, no, I'm going to fight. I'm going to defend uh, my country. And God says, no, you're, you're, you're just going to make it worse if you fight, just surrender. And Zedekiah refused to just surrender to, to Nebuchadnezzar, which made everything worse. And God said, if you disobey me, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm. I'm going to bring all of my omnipotence against you, Zedekiah. Jeremiah 27.5 uses the same phrase, my, but it, now it's more literal, my great power and by my outstretched arm. So God has great power, but God doesn't use it in an oppressive way. He's not a tyrant. He's not like the kings of the ancient Near East who lorded it over everyone and oppressed everyone like the, uh, like the Pharaoh or like the uh, Babylonian uh, emperors or the Persian emperors. He rules with righteousness and justice. 
righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. What this is saying is that God's rule over his people is based on righteousness and justice. Now, righteousness is the Hebrew word tzedek, which means the, the, uh, the righteousness is the, the perfect standard of God's character. And then uh, the word mishpat is the word for justice here, and that's the application of God's perfect standard of righteousness to his people. He's perfectly righteous, and he knows all the details, so he can judge in perfect uh, equality. Everybody gets the same judge who knows everything. Psalm 37, 6 and other passages emphasize God's righteousness. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Often these two terms uh, occur together in the Psalms. Psalm 48:10, according to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. And the right hand is what will give blessings, and so it comes from his righteousness. Psalm 96, 13, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his, with his truth. And so when we look at Psalm 89, his righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And then it says, uh, mercy, that's chesed, and truth, emuna. Again, go before your face. So this is, this is what goes before you. This is what, how you are applying this to the human race. And so the result of this is going to be in verse 16. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. What's the joyful sound? The joyful sound is the praise of the people who are thanking God for his blessings. And so he's saying, blessed are those who hear the praises of God, who hear people singing praises to God. Uh, blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Why? They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. And then in verse 16 we read, in your name they rejoice all day long. They rejoice in the character of God. What we've been studying is righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his truth, his omnipotence, his stability, his faithfulness. They live in the light of God's blessing, his countenance shining upon them. And so then in verse 17 we read, For you are the glory of their strength. You are the essence of their strength. What makes them strong is your character and their trust in you. And that's the same thing for us. Is he, his strength is what is the source of our strength. And then it says, and in your favor, our horn is exalted. Now the word horn or the concept horn as a, as a metaphor refers to power. And so it's saying that in your grace, our power, our ability to handle the situations in life, is exalted. And then it concludes in verse 18, for our shield belongs to the Lord and our king to the Holy One of Israel. That sets things up to talk about the Davidic covenant and the promise of an eternal, uh, uh, eternal king. And it is God who protects them. That's the idea of a shield. You find this in several passages I I just love the way these psalms talk about the protection of God. The Lord is my rock 
and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn that is the power of my salvation. He's my stronghold. The word there is Matsuda, where we get the name for the fortress in Israel, Masada, my stronghold. And then Psalm 28, 7 says much of the same thing. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices. And with my song, I will praise him. Psalm 89 is teaching us how to trust in God, how to work it through in our minds where we work through the essence of God and then we apply it to the particular situation. And then Psalm 119, 114, God, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. The word tells us how to trust in God and to hide in him. So next time, we'll come, we finished up this first section of Psalm 89, the focus upon God, and then the next section, starting in verse 19, focuses on God's promise to David. Father, thank you for the opportunity to work through this passage, to be reminded of how faithful you are, how loyal you are, how you uh, yearn to protect us and to provide for us and to fulfill your promises to us, and that we need to learn how to pray more biblically as we claim promises and present our petitions to you in our prayers. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've learned tonight. In Christ's name, amen.